Hello, I'm Tom Hauser. Year after year, gun control advocates have called for tighter restrictions on access to guns in Minnesota. The 2019 legislative session might be their best chance for success in many years. This week, two new bills were introduced to try and limit that access, but they will again face major opposition. On the first day of session, gun control groups made it clear they will be watching lawmakers very closely. Both, we know, will in fact reduce gun violence if they get passed. In the third week of session, DFL Senator Ron Latz introduced two gun control bills. One expands criminal background checks for most private sales. The other is an extreme risk protection bill, also known as a red flag law allowing family members or law enforcement to seek court orders to take guns from anyone deemed a risk to themselves or others. If you are a law-abiding gun owner and you don't have a prohibited criminal history, you really have nothing to worry about from these bills. Less than an hour before DFL Senator Ron Latz introduced his gun control measures, the GOP Senate Majority Leader Paul Gazelka was down the hall speaking to the Gun Owners Caucus. His agenda is to be far more gun restriction than we think is, is even reasonable. But Gazelka says with just a one-vote majority of Republicans, he can't guarantee to block new gun laws. We've seen that it is a, a bit of a demographic difference more than a party difference. Rob Dorr of the Gun Owners Caucus says they hope to balance the possible loss of some suburban Republican votes with rural Democrats voting against more gun control. He says more background checks won't keep guns out of the hands of criminals. Vast majority of them are getting them through straw purchases, the black market, and theft. And this bill isn't going to address any of those issues. And he says the red flag laws might be unconstitutional. A vigorous debate over gun control has just begun. Minnesota would join only a handful of states if it were to pass universal background checks and red flag gun laws. The new commissioner who has just taken over the Department of Corrections is working with lawmakers on safety reforms to protect prison officers and staff at the state's prisons. This comes after a violent year of assaults, including the July attack in Stillwater Prison that claimed the life of corrections officer Joseph Gom. Another corrections officer died of a heart attack while responding to another incident. Those incidents put corrections issues near the top of the legislative agenda. Of course, we've had some horrendous uh, problems this year that we do not want to see repeated. The House chair of the Corrections Committee says the legislature stands ready to help make Minnesota prisons safer for the men and women who work there. Without safety and security in institutions, we really can't accomplish our other goals. Representative John Considine is already authoring a bill to increase staffing called the Joseph Gom Bill after the corrections officer who was murdered. For me, um, this is a critical time. New Corrections Commissioner Paul Schnell, a former police chief, says he's making prison safety his top priority. He says he'll need adequate staffing of corrections officers to do that. The Corrections Department is authorized to have 2,100 officers, but it's about 65 to 70 short of that. He says that makes it difficult for officers to get critical training. Our staffing levels being so low in general has made it really difficult to move people out to attend uh, crisis intervention training. 
Beyond staffing, they're looking at enhancing security technology like cameras, reducing double bunking of prisoners, and improving control over tools that can be used as weapons. One lawmaker said there's another way to improve the ratio of guards to inmates. You can uh, not hire any more staff, but if you reduce the population by a thousand in the prison system, that then impacts that ratio. To give you an idea of how seriously lawmakers take this issue, many of them toured Stillwater Prison on Friday, and they plan to return there Wednesday for what is believed to be the first legislative hearing inside the walls of the prison. A new bill would put the question of legalizing recreational marijuana to Minnesota voters. The bill would create a constitutional amendment that, if approved, would allow people 21 and older to use marijuana or marijuana-infused products. If approved, the question would go on the ballot for the 2020 election. If that passes, Minnesota would join 10 other states that have legalized some form of recreational marijuana. Two bills that addressed distracted driving advanced this week at the state capitol. The Senate Transportation Committee passed a bill that would only allow hands-free use of cell phones in most vehicles. A similar bill passed a House committee on Tuesday. Testimony from families of people killed in distracted driving accidents convinced some senators who used to be undecided on the issue. She was also pregnant at the time of the crash, and I lost a grandson, a two-year-old grandson that I should be holding right now instead of talking in front of you. He lost his entire existence and his life over someone looking away. I think it is time, and if we save one life, we're doing our job, just one life. That Senate committee also passed a bill that would stiffen penalties for distracted driving. Big changes in traffic laws could be coming after a deadly light rail crash in St. Paul. A five eyewitness news investigation exposed a loophole in Minnesota law which allows a light rail operator to avoid traffic charges after he blew through a traffic signal, killing the driver of a car back in July of 2017. Now a state lawmaker tells our Jay Coles it's time to make light rail train operators follow the same traffic laws as everyone else on the road. We obtained this surveillance video which shows the light rail train cruising westbound on University Avenue on a clear July evening in 2017. Traffic cameras catch the terrible collision in the middle of University Avenue and Eustace Street, where lives were changed forever. The car driver, 29-year-old Nicholas Westlake, died two days later. His girlfriend, Nellie Petkova, in the passenger seat, was injured and laid up for months. That's always painful, just coming here from the airport and carrying my bag. That's just always hurts, and it's always a reminder of what happened. It just, it never leaves me, not for a second. Despite Metro Transit investigators determining the light rail operator blew through a red light, he would not face criminal charges. County prosecutors determined they could not prove he was grossly negligent because the operator was not on his phone, was not speeding, and honked his horn before entering the intersection. And 5 Eyewitness News also discovered light rail operators are excluded from traffic laws in Minnesota, which means the LRT operator in this case would not even receive a citation for running the stop signal. Nick's family now wants that loophole closed and is filing a civil lawsuit against Metro Transit. We're looking to get some justice for Nick is why we had to bring the suit. 
and hopefully something can change. We want the light rail to be a part of our community, but it has to be safe and it has to be treated to at least the same standard as you or I when we drive a car. What was your reaction when you found out they weren't governed by the same traffic laws as motorists? Well, pretty, I mean, pretty shocked, pretty amazed, you know. State Representative Linda Runbeck tells me she's written a bill that would require light rail operators to face the same consequences as other drivers who break traffic laws. You're going to get your, a ticket, and it's going to be a gross misdemeanor if you're driving under the influence, if you are, you know, texting while operating, uh, and if you're speeding. Jay Coles, 5 Eyewitness News. And Representative Rumbeck says her bill will be ready for debate at the Capitol as early as this week. Coming up, Ember Scott Young and Annette Meeks will be here for political analysis. And could automated trucking soon be a reality on Minnesota roads? We'll show you how it works and how truckers say it could have a big impact on drivers and the environment and their bottom line. There might be a day in the future when there are passenger vehicles and semi-trailer trucks on the highway with no drivers. That day is not here yet, but technology is already in place to get Minnesota part of the way there with something called truck platooning. The classic convoy movie and song from the 1970s. How's it going up front? They're clearing up a jam in Grand Junction. Is getting a real life update of sorts in the 21st century. It's called truck platooning and could be coming to Minnesota within the next several years. The platooning systems that we're working on are built on decades of previous R&D. Several trucking industry representatives testified at a Minnesota Senate hearing about the future of trucking. Partner available. Proceed at 54 miles per hour. Platooning would involve two semi-trucks following each other very closely with the lead truck driver controlling the accelerating and braking of both vehicles. Ready to platoon. The trucking industry needs one change in state law to make this happen in Minnesota. Right now, truckers are required to keep 500 feet between them and another vehicle. Under a possible proposal, they would close that gap to 40 to 60 feet to allow for truck platooning. Now platooning. Experts say the lead truck will save 4.5% in fuel cost and the following truck will save 10%. What we have found is that uh, motorists don't notice that the trucks are platooning because trucks today are often traveling very close already. And the trucking industry is using the connectivity technology to platoon trucks in Texas and testing it in Florida and other states. They say it can improve fuel efficiency and safety because of collision avoidance technology that is also being used. And joining me now for political analysis, Annette Meeks and Ember Reichgott Young. And, you know, this technology is fascinating and everything, but I, it, it does raise the question, do we feel comfortable with it? Well, we might not be comfortable yet, but I think in the next couple of years as it starts to become more commonplace on, on vehicles we buy, right now there's five stages of this autonomous vehicles, and as people start to buy them and get more used to this, I think we'll all get more comfortable. But more importantly, it's so much safer. 93% of all accidents are human errors, and so eliminating that part will make driving safer. And if my desktop computer is any uh, indication, there are also computer errors that happen a lot. Uh, how big of a concern is that, and how much of a headache will that be for lawmakers to try to regulate this? Yeah. 
I think this is going to take a great deal of time. We know that technology is not perfect. Look at some of the government systems we've tried to install. Uh, there have been instances on other states where we've seen accidents with this computer technology on driverless cars. So we got to take our time on this. And again, you talk about the human error, human uh, involvement in these accidents. That certainly has been a big part of the topic uh, on the hands-free cell phone issue, the distracted driving issue. And uh, Annette, it seems to me there's a better chance than ever that hands-free only phone law will pass here I in Minnesota. Now, it's often been Republicans who've kind of stood in the way of losing another freedom, but is it finally time? I think it's time. We're not revolutionary people. We want to think these things through, and especially something that carries a criminal penalty and, frankly, something that's going to protect innocent drivers that have been killed by distracted driving. I think this year I see bipartisan support, and I also see pretty unanimous support that it's time. Now, I covered this extensively last year. We followed the hands-free bill from start to finish, and at the very end, as has happened in many other sessions, it just quietly disappeared in the middle of the night and nobody would say who it was that killed it. What's the likelihood that's going to happen this session? I agree with Annette on this, which is good. I really believe it's going to pass this session. I think that time has passed and built up a constituency, and we need to make our roads safer. Now, we did a five eyewitness news investigation uh, this week about uh, light rail operators and how they apparently are not held to the same traffic laws that you and I would be when we're out on, on the highway. And Ember, uh, th there seems to be a loophole yeah. in state law. Uh, tell me about that. Well, it's a, it's a big loophole right now, and we lost, tragically, Nick Westlake, a fabulous ballroom dancer from our community. Um, there are basically two laws. The first is a criminal law. That includes light rail, but you have to prove gross negligence in that, and prosecutors say that didn't happen. But there's another law, the traffic law, that says that the driver, if he's careless or runs a red light, that's a violation. The problem is the traffic law doesn't include light rail. To me, there's an inconsistency. It's an outdated law. It should be changed. There shouldn't be much argument about that. And it seems there's ample evidence that there was carelessness in this case. There's a lot of evidence, video evidence. It's just shocking to watch that report that Jay Coles did. Just shocking. And more importantly, it shouldn't have happened. And so I think this is another bipartisan thing that folks will agree on. It's time to change the law, update it so that light rail operators and other things as they come on line uh, are included in our in our traffic laws. The idea he ran a red light and killed an innocent man is just shocking to most people. Uh, another one of many issues being added to the agenda this year. Absolutely, but what the Westlake family wants is to prevent this in the future. In this case, the driver wasn't held accountable under any law, and that shouldn't happen. Less than a minute left. Uh, there are, of course, gun control advocates at the Capitol again. Uh, making their voices heard, a couple of bills that we talked about at the top of the show, uh, more, more extensive background checks and the red flag laws. What are the chances in reality of any of those things becoming law? Slim and none. I think part of the reason why they're back is because we do feel unsafe. We keep hearing about these horrendous murders that are happening, uh, but they're, they're happening not because we don't have laws that cover them. Most of these guns are stolen. Uh, and, and so I think most people would like something to happen, but we're just not sure what it is. And gun control advocates are having a hard time mm -hmm. being able to prove that these things will 
keep guns out of the hands of criminals. But I disagree with Annette. I think we have a strong possibility of passing one or both laws this year. Look at the public approval of background checks. Very high in this state. All you need are a couple of Republican senators who are in suburban districts to come on over and you've got these laws passed and it's essential for gun safety. But as we know, the gun lobby very strong in the state of Minnesota and across the country. So we'll uh, be keeping an eye on that issue. Annette and Ember, thanks for being here. Up next, Mike Erlinson and Brian McDaniel will be here for face-off. We'll be back in two minutes. And welcome back. Time now for Face-Off. Joining me today, Mike Erlinson and Brian McDaniel. Thank you both uh, for being here. Boy, aren't you glad you're not in Washington? <laughs> <laughs> well, I spent 20 years there. I enjoyed every minute of it, but it's a mess. And, you, know, no and you, you worked, you were a congressional aide for a number of years. Uh, how many shutdowns were you through? Were you through some? There was a couple shutdowns, but I think the longest one I can remember was two or three days. Yeah. And so the fact that we've now had a record government shutdown take place in our history is pretty amazing. Uh, take, taking the long view of this, and by the long view I'm talking 2020, <laughs> it, is there any winner in this deal, or is there one major loser? I have a feeling I, I know who you might say. <laughs> well, I mean, look at the President of the United States of America now. In the 72 years they've been tracking approval ratings, has the lowest collective approval rating for a presidency going. He's now at 37% based on a Washington Post ABC poll. 53% of Americans blame Donald Trump for the government shutdown. And so, you know, it's a mess for the Republicans, Republican parties. And this week in Washington, D.C., you even had Republican senators calling on Leader McConnell to stop this and starting to blame him as well. And for about 800,000 federal workers who were living without paychecks, uh, his approval rating is probably closer to zero. Yeah, it's probably closer to zero. And, I, I, you know, I've experienced shutdowns on the state level, um, nothing of this length, of course. Um, in the long view, is there a winner? I mean, Donald Trump can come out okay on this if ultimately the wall is built. Um, you know, I think a lot of people don't believe that the wall is a necessity, but they also recognize he campaigned on it. He was elected because of it, so that this is an okay hill for him to, to, you know, to attempt to die on. Um, but ultimately, in the scheme of things, it is something that should be negotiated, and the Democrats should be coming forward with things that they want in exchange for the wall. Yeah, because he, he's clearly playing to his base on this wall issue, and it's uh, most polls have shown that the vast majority of, of Americans are not as uh, focused on this wall as the president is. But certainly that, that there's a higher percentage of those people in his base who are focused on it. Well, there's no question about it. I mean, even Colin Peterson, you know, the congressman here from Minnesota, pointed out this week that maybe we should give him the wall because we're probably going to build this thing at some point in our nation's history anyway. That's, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is a different conversation. But, you know, Donald Trump is so focused on this. Nobody else is. Uh, it's $5.7 billion amongst a $22 trillion national debt that we have. Um, but at the same time, um, he's willing to have these 800,000 people have to uh, go uh, hungry in some cases, um, you know, and seek shelter from places and maybe lose their home. I mean, it's just ridiculous behavior uh, by the President of the United States of America. And as he pointed out, 37% approval rating. Does that change the dynamics? I know 2020 is a long way off, although not as long as you think. Uh, any uh, Change any of the dynamics about whether he actually even runs again? Well, I mean, I think that even if he had a fantastic four years, uh, his odds of getting reelected are 50-50 just because we're a 50-50 country. Uh, I, I wonder if his ego would allow him to put himself in a position where he might lose. Um, Nikki Haley at the top of the ticket, someone like that, 
probably gives more Republicans a, a chance to get those seats back that we lost. All right, let's uh, talk about some of the, the state politics. One thing we didn't get to uh, before is the possibility, speaking of 2020, of a constitutional amendment on recreational marijuana. Uh, what would that do to to juice people at the polls, so to <laughs> juice speak. people. <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah, the uh, well, you know, certainly people will be very engaged if that's on the ballot on both sides. Um, you know, I think that we've seen across the country um, when these things have been put on the ballot, they've passed the vast majority of the time. Uh, whether that's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do, I don't know. But I think in, this is one of the few cases it probably makes sense to let all Minnesotans vote on something. As a general rule, I think putting stuff on the on the ballot. Uh, is, is the legislators being afraid to do their jobs. Yeah, because even if voters did approve it, then lawmakers would still have to create the framework for how it's going to work. Sure. There's a big difference between decriminalization, legalization, and commercialization. And there are a lot of things that have happened in California and uh, Colorado that are cautionary tales. If this is something that's going to happen, it needs to be very well thought out, very well planned out. And my fear would be that if it's on the ballot, it might speed up a process that might need a longer time to, to be perfected. And then we still don't know how, where the federal government is ultimately going to come down on this. There's been talk about banning recreational marijuana nationwide or decriminalizing it nationwide. We just don't know. Well, and the reality is it's not really being enforced anywhere. It's not being enforced by the states. It's not being enforced by the federal government. You know, they have the whole issue of banking that's out there where there's these massive vaults with all the cash that's being housed, whether that's recreational legal sales or even in Minnesota where we have it for medical purposes, yeah. right? There's no way to bank this because the federal government. And my sense is this president might actually be for decriminalizing it, um, but he just can't quite get there. Well, one of the major issues we'll be following as we also wait for the budget to come from the governor uh, next month. So we've got a lot to talk about here uh, between now and May. Up next, putting lawmakers to the grocery bagging test. We'll show you how they did in the annual bag off. Don't put bread on the bottom. We heard that a lot at the bipartisan grocery bag off between legislative leaders at the state capitol on Wednesday. They were judged on speed, style, and weight distribution. The winner for the second time since 2017, Republican House Minority Leader Kurt Doubt. We have a fun time, but the real reason to do this is, is the charity. Uh, $10,000 to Second Harvest and $1,000 to a food shelf in my district. And as you saw, I had the privilege of emceeing the event again this year. And if you didn't know already, I am a proud former grocery beggar. Might be heading back there before too long. I also took part in the Diamond Awards with the Minnesota Twins Organization and the Bob Allison Ataxia Research Center this week. The benefit featuring awards to current and former twins has raised more than $3 million for neurological disease research at the University of Minnesota over the past several years. My sister was also able to be there with me. And I took part in the North American Pond Hockey Championships last weekend on Lake Minnetonka. I lived to tell about it. Several former NHL players and other media also took part. That event has raised more than a million dollars for several charities over the past six years, including the Hendrickson Foundation this year. And that is all the time we have for now. We hope to see you back here again next week for another edition of At Issue.